1: Welcome to New Books and Biography, I'm Oline Eaton. Coco Chanel really needs no introduction, and yet it is precisely those people who we think we already know everything about, whose lives can be full of unexpectedly rich and unexplored periods. In her new biography, Chanel and Intimate Life, biographer Lisa Chaney provides a provocative portrait of a woman we already think we know, proving we maybe don't. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, uh, where do we begin? Um, I suppose maybe it's... Maybe it's I, I'm sure every writer will have some story that's rather similar. When I was very small, I, I had a a, a mini epiphany and knew that I wanted to be a writer. It took me a long time to actually do it. I think um, fear of failing, I I, I, I didn't it. I didn't start writing when I was young because I think I was fearful of not being good enough, not being good enough at it but i i I grew up in a of i don't know sort of intellectual bohemian background where reading and writing was just sort of it, it was, there was no pressure that was just what was going on around you all the time was, and i I was a mad, voracious reader I'm sure I presume most writers were but but I, um, I think when I was quite youngish, I, I we, we'd lived all around the world, and then when we came to England, I, I was put in this very strict, very old-fashioned. I, I can now see, it in some, some ways, very good school, but I, um, I, I think i began to react. And then, then, because the ring would come from the tropics where we hadn't been to school for two and a half years. It was there, I realized. Sitting up a large mangrove tree, looking out over the Pacific Ocean, reading a book stolen from my father's library, a grown-up book, that I realized I wanted to be a writer. And I think coming to London sort of made me feel terribly confined. So I think I started to react, and for how I was 16, I was expelled from school and became a... Drop out and was delighted that I was you know, um not acceptable and then I think over a period of a few years i I got terribly bored and sort of dropped back in and went to college and really began to realize that some in some kind of focus level living all sorts of things doing having a rather wacky life in many ways gradually gradually getting to the point where I did actually start writing. I, I taught in university for quite a long time, but I knew... It came to the point where I, was, I should really have been writing a terribly serious-worthy academic book. <laughs> and I knew I just wanted to reach more people. Um, not that I don't think academia is very worthwhile, I do, but I, I wanted to reach more people. I wanted to tell stories to more people. And I sort of... I, I didn't really intend becoming a biographer. It, just, it, it sort of happened a series circumstances, and people started asking me, was I writing the biography of the woman I wrote my first biography of? And I kind of think, no, 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 I couldn't do that, I couldn't do that, and then I started thinking, oh my goodness, maybe I could, and I did, <laughs> and it did really well, but, it, I mean, each writer has, in some ways, a totally different journey, but in other ways, they're I don't know if lots of similarities, I think, aren't there between us? You know, I'm obsessed with words. They, they have always a physical effect on me. Um, I, I care very much about the way I write. I very much want the reader to be in the world that I'm creating. I'm very conscious of using not only the tools of the historian, but the, no, the tools of the novelist. If I can't make a reader want to turn the page, I regard it as a failure. I am very... I was very touched, I was very complimented when a reviewer once said her book reads like a novel. Um, but that's a very long answer to your simple question. <laughs>
1: no, 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 it's perfect. perfect. Um, so what do you think are the strengths of writing in biography as a genre? What's driv- drawn, driven you to that exactly?
0: I think it is a particular kind of fascination with people. And uh, again, I think I, I think I really do believe that you can't really write biography when you're very young. I think you have to have had uh, a fair amount of life experience. I mean, a lot of people would say that about novelists. I don't think it's always the case, but I think with a biography, you 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 have to have acquired, I think, some kind of emotional imagination. It's not that, um, and I think in this certain way, you only acquire that with age, with time, with life, with experience. And because, because for me, the good biographer is someone who finds a person and then does their utmost to try and understand that person and then tries for the reader to, to put that person into the context that they came from. In other words, to, I suppose, use modern journalists to embed them in the time from which they came, so that the reader understands why you are saying, you the writer, I think, these people were very important. I only like to write about people who, I feel when they left the world, they left it really rather a different place from the one that they, you know, when they came into it. Um, They had an effect. I mean, the biography I wrote before this, Chanel was J.M. Barrie, the man that wrote Peter Pan. and I I think there's this there's this dialogue becomes to be this dialogue between you and your subject. I mean, you know, you, I wish I didn't, but after a time, you live, eat, sleep, dream of, you know, when you wake up in the middle of the night, it's awful, actually. But it is, certainly for the last year or so when I'm writing, it is literally, it's not what am I thinking about when you wake up in the night. They're just, they're there. It is that it, you are thinking it, and I I suppose I do go into some kind of a zone that is just... It's, I, I always say they're going on slightly in the back of your mind all the time, as I think is the case for any writer when they're writing a book. But but because it's this slightly strange thing being a biographer, and I'm a quite dynamic personality, and yet in a weird way sometimes you think, God, I'm like, I'm like a ghost. It's sort of It's sort of to be a really good biographer in a funny way, you ought not to exist of course you do exist because you're making decisions all the time how do i present this person i must be honest i must have integrity i have all this extraordinary information if i chose to i could extraordinarily manipulate the information so that my reader i know i could make my reader think that about this person but you're that I think I like about biography is that for me, the good biographer is someone with great integrity, because there is this constant temptation to uh, look at yourself and say, "No, come on, the truth, the truth, whatever that is, the truth of, of this person is what you're trying to get at." But I, not not in a clinical way, I want very much for the reader to understand the mystery of what it is to be a human being. I, I I love that. I love that in a way that someone will close my book and say, I still don't quite understand her, but maybe like you, Lisa, I can now empathize with her or I understand something of her because I don't think we ever 100% understand another human being, do we? The older I get, the more modest I feel about that.
1: That's kind of promising though like you don't who, people should be so complex that they really can't be understood in one book that's kind of it's sad that we think that they could be.
0: Yes, I agree and I think that's why um, one's very conscious that in a funny way biography is apparently a very conventional genre I mean a lot of people I think it's a great shame but a lot of people I think mistakenly see it like that and it's not because at its best. It's just the same as a novel in that it is describing the wonderful remarkableness of what it is to be human and the strangeness of what it is to be human. <laughs> and if I can get that across about another human being, the particular way in which they were, the particular way they made the world differently, the particular way they lived their life and create. I'm very interested in creative people, makers, I suppose... And if I can get that across, if I can get the person to think, wow, like I do when I'm you know, researching them, then that makes me really pleased. <laughs>
1: Um, So before the interview, we were actually talking about process a little bit and how we like to, when we talk to people, we say that, oh, yes, I I gathered all of my papers and then I sat down and I wrote for three months and I was done. But actually that the writing of biographies is really messy kind of ordeal. (laughs) Can you talk a bit about your process?
0: That's very good. I really like the word ordeal. I couldn't (laughs) identify more so. I think when I finish I think I feel maybe everyone does when they finish but I feel brain dead at the end actually (laughs) a month afterwards because it is an ordeal I realised with this one you know my third big book and I realised not that far into it my goodness this is like a marathon this this is like a marathon you know physically, mentally, emotionally psychically but I, I think I'm pretty crap at um, actually kind of protecting myself or looking after myself in the process, actually. I've become like some really ragged, nutty old artist. I sort of of lose my life. If you look at my acknowledgements and introductions, it's usually, you know, um, abasing myself with thanks and apologies to my friends and family about how I sort of just opted out of life. But it's... which which I find really strange. I'm sitting now in my study, which is lovely, it's up high, I love that, slightly out of the world, it's up on the second floor of the building, looking way out, marvelous view. And, you know, you spend, I spend hundreds of hours in my study, shut away, it amuses me when people say, how do you spend all that time by yourself? And it's funny, I, I quite like talking, I talk a lot, but I also really, really like on my own writing. It's fine. It doesn't matter. It doesn't worry me at all because you're creating this other world, just like a novelist. And you want to... It's strange all the time. It's a strange mixture of the truth with a capital T. But as I said earlier, I think not in any kind of clinical way. So there's all these different things you're bringing to bear that's what i really like about biography it's your it's your intellect it's your intuition it's your integrity it's your sense of artistry it's your love of words it's your interest and love of people it's your ability to be ability to be mature about the subject you're you're treating of it's your i think in the end i choose subjects whom i have a great deal of respect I don't necessarily like them but I think that they were remarkable and I think at the end usually halfway-ish through my dealing with the person I want very very much to feel that they might usually most people hate the idea of a biography being written about them but I would be very very chuffed I'd be very pleased if I knew that they'd actually secretly been a bit pleased with it (laughs) With what I'd written about them, um, and I'm not in a—I'm I'm not a hagiographer. God, I—you know, I, I, I i am very concerned to to find out the things about someone that aren't necessarily very nice. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah.
1: So, what drew you to Chanel as a subject?
0: What made me choose her? Well, I—it was actually my marvellous agent's idea. It's the first time I've been given an idea by someone else. And I was very rude at the beginning. <laughs> she pointed at my agent, she just said, right, fine. And I I said, know oh, I, mean, I don't like about fashion designer. I mean, I love clothes and, and I'm fascinated by them, but I said, and anyway, I, I, I don't actually like her clothes. And and uh, my agent said, right, okay. And then I went away and I started thinking about it because Claire always comes up you with know, interesting thoughts. And I started looking up Chanel. So and very quickly, I realised not. I think by the route that perhaps some people would have come to her. I I taught history of art and design for a long time in university, and um, one of the main periods I taught and was fascinated by was you know, what's called the modern period. So it's the 19th century into the 20th century. And so I, I when I realised that Chanel had not only known, but been the lover of and amused to a great number of the people whom I regard as the founders of modern art, what we now call modernism. I was, I was flabbergasted. I just, I did, I had not known this, but I knew a lot about all these people, Diaghilev, Stravinsky, Picasso, um, Jean Cocteau. I mean, you know, you can just go on and on and on. And I could not believe that this woman, uh, just, just a fashion designer, had actually been in such intimate contact with all these people. And when I realized that, I ran up my agent. and I said, I really want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a huge motivation for me to actually try, because I don't think any biographer has ever done that for her before. No. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to show that she's a major cultural figure. Um, and it was through her connection with these people that I realised how much she was that. And if I, I've, I've been written to by a number of people, which is always very touching when people take the trouble to do that. And a few have actually said, "I, I like me. You know, I had no idea she had a connection with all these fascinating artists early in the 20th century." You've made, you've made her seem so much more interesting, and i was very pleased because that's what I thought about her myself. Right.
1: So what sources were most helpful to you?
0: Sorry? Uh, what
1: sources were most helpful to you? What
0: sources? Well, Chanel, the company, were very helpful. Um, you, you can't write a book about someone like that without having their backing. Um, although I think they were they were very helpful, um, but I think they were also ambivalent because they were frightened of what I might discover because I was quite clear at the beginning, you know, if I discover things which might be uncomfortable i'm afraid i'm not a biographer that's noted for covering things up i will have to put them down but they were decent enough to slightly reluctantly accept that and uh every time i went to paris they kindly i i had an office in one of the main chanel buildings and um initially it was very helpful um there is this thing that they call that archive. It's a slight misuse of the word archive in a way, because I think archive really means something with what you call primary source, meaning unpublished material. What it is, is it saves you a lot of time. It's every published Thing that had ever been published on Chanel. I have it all collected in this room, all of files. And so, every magazine article, every you know, lots of going back right early, all the photographs from the different magazines, a no, lot of, of her work, her work, et cetera. And that was brilliant because I could have done that elsewhere, but it would have meant going to this, that, and the other mm-hmm. library, both in France and in England. And it would have been much, much more time consuming. But as to Original material—they have almost nothing. Um, really, it, it always gets talked about as their archive, but it—they <laughs> it, 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 have a, there's a well, there's a handful of letters, partly because in fairness to them, um, they don't exist. She wrote very, very few letters, um, and they have a, a brilliant database of photographs, thousands and thousands of anything to do with her, but many of them they don't own the copyright for. Well, I read all the helpful but on the whole i found people just by you work something out and you think ah now that person was connected to i wonder if their daughter or grandson great-great-grandson etc et is still alive and then you might be lucky enough to find them. one of the major one i like to feel was one of my major clues was i actually have it as the um as the epigraph of the book it says Capel said, remember that you're a woman all too often. I forgot that, that's Chanel saying that. I realized that her English lover, this extraordinary man um, before and during the First World War, Arthur Capel, Capel, the French call him, and his nickname is Boy. She herself said, without him, I would have been nothing. He was my father, my brother, my sister, my mother. But she didn't just mean financially. He did happen to be her first backer, but she didn't mean that. Um, And I thought, no biographer has ever yet picked up on this fantastically important statement. Mm -hmm. All the previous biographies had trotted out the same old stuff about this mysterious, enigmatic man, very rich, very handsome, etc., etc., dead by 1919, very important. But that was it. And I started looking for him, for instance, and all the previous biographies had got it wrong where he went to school. And, you know, once you once you have one lead that's wrong, you you can come up against the brick wall. So once I started to find out more, and the school was wrong, there was a stop. But I, I, know, I know, he was a Catholic, and I know a fair amount about the history of Catholicism, and I knew that it sounded wrong where he went to senior school. So I looked up another couple of schools, and it turned out that actually he went to Stonyhurst here in the north of England and I just I was so excited that I worked out that point where he went, I just picked up the phone and spoke to the archivist and he was brilliant. I don't think he'd ever been well up and spoken to about, you know, a fashion designer called Coco Chanel. Could you build a connection with one of your old boys from the end of the nineteenth century? He was brilliant. And he found this amazing little thumbnail autobiographical piece that Arthur I had to write about himself. And he sent it to me. It says, marvellous, our photograph in my computer, of the, in his own hand. And it was, it was only three lines. And it was, ah, oh, talking about it, the hair standing up on the back of my neck. <laughs> it said where he was born. It said that his mother was French. It said where he went to primary school, it said et cetera, et cetera. And, and so many things came out of that, including the whole, I mean, the whole early up to sort of the central part of the book, is is based on this extraordinary love affair with this man. And I found out things that had never been found out. I mean, I know more about him now than his own family does. <laughs> um, but he... That, you just... I think, I, you know, when I give talks now, I think this time around I've realised, I sort of say, well, if I never get another commission, maybe I'll become a detective. I think I'm not bad. at. It's that funny mixture, isn't it, of... Knowledge, intuition, and um, the det- huge, dogged determination, like a terrier wearing away at a bone. And then something comes to you in the middle of the night, doesn't it? And you mm-hmm. just you've understood something, and then you can go on to the next lead. So it was a mixture of that. Like that was a lot of 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 you know, looking in libraries, and but then I did eventually. For instance, I found his grandson. Um, I found his grandson and his grandson-in-law. And they were brilliant. They were absolutely brilliant. And they gave me this marvellous package. They gave me, the first time I met them, and we were all so moved by meeting each other, But they gave me this package of letters which had been hidden in a secret book for about 80 years. And there were letters um, from him to the woman he married instead of Chanel, and then the whole story
1: just sort of mushroomed, really. <laughs> so I have, this is one last technical question, which I'm working on a book about Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. So names are really, really important to me. Um, um, and in mm-hmm. the book, you ref, you do not refer to her as Coco or as Chanel. You refer to her as Gabrielle. What yeah. was the reason for this? I'm sure there has
0: yeah, to be some sort of thought process behind that's it. That's a nice question. I'm glad you asked it, because it's actually really important to me. Um, I put in... Uh, uh, sadly, as a proper in inverted commas biographer, I'm I'm never allowed loads of photographs. I mean, you know, more picture book type books have lots of photographs, but I only usually get two two spreads of eight pages each. So it's it's not it's not a matter of of what photographs do I have. It's <laughs> which ones I leave that, But one I was absolutely determined to have is is a very early photograph of her. Um, it's 1913, and it's. Standing outside her first shop um, with her with, my dear close relation who's always like a, a sister to her she's actually a cousin but but anyway, she was her aunt actually but um and they're standing outside the shop and she 's got this marvelous you know, classic early chanel clothes on that she's wearing. And behind her, you can see the awning to the shop. And written in beautiful script, it says Gabrielle Chanel. And this confirmed completely my thoughts, which were, I was trying to write a book about an icon, Coco Chanel, and I wanted to find the real woman behind the icon. She was christened Gabrielle, and she chose very much in the early part of her life to call herself Gabrielle. So it seemed completely, not just appropriate to me, it seemed terribly important that that's what I should call her, because I thought that was the real her. The Coco was the professional name that became part of the iconic image. And, you know, we all know what that icon is, Coco Chanel, but I wanted to find who the real person was.
1: So our interviews usually move chronologically through the subject's life, but I wanted to start with you and to kind of use your book as a talking point for the larger issue of of controversy in biography and what it's like as a biographer to have written a controversial book. So when this, uh, when this book came out, it was considered fairly controversial. Can you discuss a bit of the controversy that surrounded it um, and what it was like also as a biographer to have it released in, under that environment?
0: Um, hell, <laughs> Because because you're you're kind of it's not regarded as correct to sort of stand up on a soapbox and scream at various journalists, etc cetera, etc cetera, which is what you actually feel like doing. Um I, uh, one of the major issues when the book actually came out, it was of course very, very irritating. Um, there's an an elderly American guy who was a journalist, um, who brought out a book Uh, about Chanel, and basically his thesis, his, his only thesis really, is that she was a spy for the Nazis in the Second World War. Um... So it it it, it, it irritates me intensely his assumption that because she had you know, his, because she had a number that she must she was she was a spy. I, I I I object deeply to the way of writing, which is that you know guilt by association. Um, you set up a premise, and you know already what you're going to have as your answer because you have decided beforehand. Um, all sorts of things are said, but in the back of the book there are not even any footnotes. No proper referencing to what is to the argument that is being put forward. Sadly, lots of journalists, I think, either didn't even read the book or read the book, and it's intentionally very sensational, mm. um, and they just completely accepted it because, of course, it's a very, very touchy issue. If you are not only an anti-Semite, and there's no question she was anti-Semitic. But then so, and this is not in any way, i no way, I'm an apologist for Chanel, but so were many, many people across Europe who were not Nazis, you know, mild anti-Semitism was, I mean, it was rife. Every European country and anyone that says otherwise is just a jolly big liar. But we we there's sort of a there's a kind of knee jerk reaction um, and I, I have a almost like a little essay in the, in the book where I'm talking about her collaborating. Collaborating, I say, by living with somebody who, I mean, she lived in the Ritz. The Ritz was taken over by the Nazis during the war. How bad is that? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't um, look good. <laughs> it does not look good, exactly. And I think her behavior was reprehensible, and I say that. What I am absolutely not convinced by, and I think I'm probably the only person around at the moment, who's looked at the same documents as this other man. I'm not convinced, I'm absolutely not convinced by the argument. He does not know her. He he took one aspect of her life, and from that, he makes enormous judgments about her, which I personally do not feel that there is anything like enough proper historical evidence given for them. I feel I really know her. Mm-hmm. And on my um, accounting, I absolutely do not believe that she personally spied for the Nazis. As I as I said, that does not mean that I don't think her behaviour was reprehensible. It wasn't for nothing that she, you know, went and lived in Switzerland after the war for some years. She was advised to by her lawyer. But again, that doesn't mean that she was a spy. It means that she knew damn well that she had behaved pretty damn badly. But I I I connect her, for instance, to her sort of friend Colette, another French monstre sacre, they like to call him a sacred monster. Um, Colette, you know, Colette uh, was married to a Jew um, and yet wrote for one of the most perniciously anti-Semitic Jewish um, uh, periodicals for part of the war. um, When she was uh, questions about this, she said. Well, I had to make money. He couldn't make any money. But you know, <laughs> you, you sort of there are lots of questions you can ask about that. And so, I'm not. I was. I'm not interested in justifying Colette. I'm not interested in justifying Chanel. But there are levels. What I say in my argument is there are levels of collaboration. And that final premise on which the whole of Vonnegut's book is based—that she was a spy—I deeply object to. I think it is scandalous. You know, you can't defame the dead, can you? So he can say all these appalling things and she can't stand up and <sighs> defend herself. So it's very, very hard for me to say any of this without, without people, if they're not listening very carefully, not thinking that I'm an apologist for her. and not. She was a very flawed person. And what I say was, like Colette, I think she was a survivor, he was going to damn well survive the war. And that's different from saying, I'm actually going to become a traitor to my country by actually giving information to the enemy. Hmm. Um, I think I better stop now because I could go on all day about this. (laughs)
1: No, no, no. I mean, if it's any consolation as a reader, that is the, the section of the book that really stuck with me. I didn't know much about France during the occupation. I'd read about Edith Piaf, but most of the stories of people I'd read about then were from about the resistance. And so I got this impression that the resistance was this huge thing that everybody was a part of. And so it was just eye-opening to read those passages in your book and
0: see all of the the, the, the moral shades of
1: grey and all (laughs) of it. No, it was just extraordinary. I immediately ordered three other books about France during the occupation because I had to find out because I knew nothing. Yes,
0: yes, yes. 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 Well, I'm really really very, very very, very gratified that that, that you're saying that. It's really made my day because it means that so here is a reader who's read my book with care because I I, I slightly dreaded once I discovered that, that von Dinklage, her German lover, was... I don't know if he was ever a paid-up Nazi. It doesn't matter. He spied for them. Mm-hmm. And he was the most ghastly, the um, cause, so utterly plausible uh, character. Mm-hmm. But I, I tried... I, once I discovered that, which was fairly early on, all these extraordinary number of documents in Switzerland and France that I had to wade my way through, et etc., cetera, et cetera, I was slightly dreading coming to that part of the book where I had to write this down, and how could I do it in such a way that I could try and convince the reader what I've obviously convinced you of, and I'm so glad that you took it the way I wanted, I hoped, the reader would take it, which is, I think I say at some point, don't I, it's not something which can be described. Collaboration is not black and white. Uh, Sadly, there are many areas of grey, and if you think of a spectrum, and you put Colette and Chanel on the spectrum, they're very definitely on the side of collaboration, as far as I'm concerned, or certainly Chanel is. But... That is not the same as being a spy, and so it does make me—it makes me very angry and sad that so many contemporary journalists and critics have accepted what this man has said. I think it was—I think it was the L.A. Times, or maybe, maybe it was the New York Times, or some very good American newspaper. I was so pleased they—they they sort of said things like you know, rather scandalously, which and really not sure about how he's come about using his material because uh, it. They're very serious things we're talking about, aren't they? Yeah. Not just, well, yeah, actually, Chanel wore red on that day. No, actually, I think she wore pink. I mean... Really? <laughs> Um, As you can hear, I feel very passionately
1: about it. I agree, because I think that this is something that biography can really do. Is that when I read those passages, it made me wonder what, what, you know, you want to judge them and be like, oh, they collaborated, that's dreadful, which it's it's not great, obviously. But then if I were in that situation, I don't know what I would do. Like, you have to put yourself in the sub, you want to condemn the subject, but then as a writer and then as a human being,
0: you project yourself into it, and there's just no way. Yes, that's very honest of you, and I think that's exactly what I felt. You keep mm-hmm. on looking into yourself while you're writing about this person, and you 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 think you know. As we know, so many French people, they had to survive. They had mm-hmm. to put. They had to feed their children. They had to feed their wives. They had you know. And that doesn't. Yeah, there comes a point where you do think. No, sorry, I I think what you did there really was. There's just no question. It was wicked. But an awful lot before you get to that stage, isn't it? And as you say, what would one do oneself? Right. How
1: wicked would we be?
0: Mm. But that doesn't make us no mm. Quite different, isn't it? Mm. Trying to survive and handing over material to the enemy, I think. Right. Hmm. So as biographers,
1: we spend a lot of time with the subjects we're writing about.
0: Tell Did me you, about it. I know. I know.
1: Did you like <laughs> Chanel? How was it spending a lot of time with her?
0: Did I like her? I don't think I liked her, mm. but I came to feel huge sympathy for her. I I sort of wanted to put my arms around her in the last part of her life and, and sort of give her a hug and, and sort of say, oh God, you poor thing, you poor thing. You are so much your own worst enemy with this terrible hard carapace that you've mm. built up around you and you've isolated yourself more and more as a result and become unkinder and unkinder to other people because actually you need so much kindness yourself and don't know how to ask for it and etc etc so I I I realise there's a difference between sympathy feeling sympathy for someone and liking them if I'd been I don't I don't know you know if I'd actually known her I might have liked her despite everything but I I think I've come to realise it it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you don't like a subject. What really matters is you, if you, even through their wickedness, if you can try and have this thing that I call emotional imagination and if you can empathize and, and or sympathize with them. And I certainly sympathize with her, mm-hmm. definitely. I feel terribly sad for her, mm-hmm. sad. <laughs> and I hope that comes across. I hope it comes across that there was this... It's little girl who became this extraordinary woman but was so sad it's in her eyes mm-hmm. um, my, my editor wanted one of the more classic glam iconic photographs for the cover of the book and um uh i really really did not want one of those photographs because again you know my book was trying to get behind the iconic image and she she said, well, well, what do you want and which which one and uh, I had it had it with me, and I immediately showed her that one, the one that's on the cover, mm-hmm. because I think that captures those two elements of her. It is extraordinarily glamorous, and yet at the same time, if you look carefully, you can see the mystery of the woman and the sadness in her eyes, and I love that that conflict, that mixture, mm-hmm. that contradiction um
1: unfortunate that we're segueing into this question from Sadness, um, but it's yeah. fascinating to read the biography of an unmarried childless woman. I actually just um, a couple months ago read about Julia Child who married late, and but just these unconventional lives are really interesting to read about because it's still a rather shocking series of choices to to be unmarried and to be childless. Mm. Uh, so how shocking was this and revolutionary and outside the conventions of her day was Chanel's life in this context?
0: Uh, uh... Well, in, in the general context, um I, I'm at pains to try and show that she herself her whole life was extraordinarily um avant garde, um ahead of its time, radical. Happenings, the milieu in which they existed for my reader so that my reader can do like I do and go, wow, that really was extraordinary. Because, you know, we all know women chopped off their hair. We all knew women started wearing dresses that were just below the knee or even on the knee. We all know that. It's, there's nothing kind of "oh wow about that for us. But if I can try and paint the picture and show you how it happened and show you the ways in which she really was... One of the first, then that's the way that then then I'm showing you that she was. I mean, really, a couple of handfuls of women, I think, who were living this modern life, and part of that um, came to be not marrying and not having children. You know, it was, uh, as you know, it was regarded as a huge failure not to marry, and uh, a, a really rather bad mark on you not to have children. There's a part of her, actually, that <clears throat> felt that herself, but another part of her, through all sorts of circumstances, I think she was actually unable to have children. I think she had um, an abortion very early on, and I think it was probably... Um, done very badly and then she couldn't have children I actually it's rather a bad thing to say about her but I actually think she would have been the most appalling mother <laughs> I think she would have desperately tried not to be but I think she was just such a marvellous powerful human being um, I think she would have probably smothered them in love but that whole thing about I mean it happened with all her love affairs she couldn't be she couldn't be She didn't. She found power very problematic, I think. I think she found equality very problematic, is perhaps a better way of putting it. I don't think she knew how to be equal. She either had to be boss or under someone, and I don't mean that metaphorically. Um, So initially, in a love affair, I think she came, she was terribly classically French and obviously feminine and all these kinds of things, but then the real her, after a time... Started coming to the fore, and I think she was nearly bursting with frustration. She couldn't, she couldn't play the part. And sadly for her, when one thinks back to the twenties and thirties, and even into the forties, or probably well beyond as well, but that was still really expected of you. And so it was very hard. It must have been so hard for a woman, a woman then who was so genuinely powerful and different. And again, I go back to my quote at the beginning. Capel said, remember that you're a woman. And she says, all too often I forgot that. (laughs) Which is a marvelous Mm -hmm. pair of statements. Uh, And I think it was a lifelong battle. And sadly... I think she suffered as a result of it. I think it's partly why she became a lonely old woman. She didn't have a partner. She didn't have children. And I think it's interesting. It's 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 sort of, sort of it's the problem for 20th century woman really. How on earth do we be working women? In her case, a very extraordinary working woman, and unite our private life, unite our emotional life with that public mm-hmm. working thing. And I think I, I don't talk about it a huge amount in the book because it's it's sort of meant to be just implicit in so much that I describe about her. I think she's tragic in a way. She's a tragic example of how that problem is something that women still struggle with, I think, do we not? <laughs> You know, whether one marries, whether one doesn't marry, whether one has children, whether one doesn't have children, all these things, and how you join them up to having the scope to have a working life as well. Mm-hmm. So again, typically, Chanel is full of contradictions there, and in some ways she would have seen herself as a failure for not marrying and having children, but at another level, up I, another deep part of her, I don't think, needed it. Um... But she's full of contradiction, like, like most of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and flaws. Are very deeply flawed. Deeply flawed. But
1: which always makes for a really good biographical subject.
0: It does. It does. Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad that people who have people who are wonderful and generous and kind and decent and have amazingly good lives sadly don't <laughs> probably make the best biography. <laughs> great shame it is unfortunate <laughs> I'd really like to write about a really really nice, good, kind person, but I think an awful lot of people would be snoring after about chapter two <laughs>
1: <laughs> it would be a much shorter book probably
0: it would, it would, Yes, just like a pamphlet
1: <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for talking with us today about Chanel and Intimate Life, any idea who you're going to be writing about next?
0: I think I just do at I think I do. And I daren't say it. You'll have to come back to me when I've signed a contract. I daren't say it because, as you know, being a writer, one has terrible superstitions. Oh, yes. And I feel it just because it's very early stages looking into it, and I feel if I say it, it won't happen. But it is a woman. Okay. And that's unusual because I didn't set out particularly to write about women. I just wanted to write about people. <laughs> Um, but again, a woman with a very sadly complex life in relation to her private life and her public life. As interestingly, the one you're writing about, Jackie, you notice maybe, maybe she did it better than some, do you think?
1: <clears throat> ah, that is the million dollar question. I, I do think so, actually, yes. Because she separated, it was because it, there was a schism and there really was a public life that she didn't really interfere with, and then a private life where she could be yes. herself. Yeah, I think yes. that's the way to do it, actually.
0: I think you're right. I think you're right. And maybe in the 21st century, women are becoming a bit more practiced at it.
1: Mm. I don't know. Um, if you look at our celebrities, it seems to be going the other way, where everybody's blending the private in with the public.
0: Oh, well, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, in that sense, we we don't... we we've Many of us forgotten what the difference is. We don't okay. know it anymore, do we? No. We don't know it. I mean... That's partly why I'm rather pleased that you can't see me and no one can see me. That sounds awful. I don't mean that in a bad way. But I like the mystery of privacy. I love the mystery of privacy. Of course, I'm fascinated when I walk past someone on the street and they're screaming at someone on their mobile and I can hear everything about their private life. But another part of me is horrified. We've, we've become utterly permeable, have we not? Yeah. The, the, the boundaries between private and public are almost gone and many people think that's a good thing I think it's very sad, I think it's boring. I think
1: it's going to make it very difficult for biographers of the future especially because if you think about trying to write a biography 50 years from now about someone who's a celebrity now I just think that would be extremely difficult
0: I think it would, but don't you think there's a very interesting thought there, which I know, of course, I'm watching that as well and thinking about that and thinking how interesting that is. Mm -hmm. As you will know from reading people's diaries and journals and even Mm -hmm. letters, there's a great temptation as the part historian, as a biographer, to believe, to believe what someone says when they talk Mm -hmm. about themselves. And I think very often that person themselves believes what they say but one of our jobs i think is to i mean for me that's huge interpretation interpreting interpreting and i think there will be a place for biographers but we will just have to work even harder Mm -hmm. at interpreting what people say and we all know someone will present i mean look at facebook right wow (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's it's a marvelous compendium of lies, mm-hmm. is it not? It in is. many, many people's it's really faces. an autobiography in a sense. Well, exactly, mm-hmm. but it's but it's it's the worst and the best of uh, of autobiography in that we know that many of them are constructs. Mm-hmm. So I exactly. think our job incre- increasingly will be to be, and I love that because I feel I'm a very interpretive biographer, mm-hmm. and so yeah, we should be sitting now looking at people's Facebook, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> Yes. Anyway, lovely to talk to you, and good luck with
1: your book. Thank you very much. I've been talking today with Lisa Chaney about her new book, Chanel and Intimate Life. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.